Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Seventy brief years have passed since the controversial political theorist Hannah Arendt published what many consider to be her seminal work, titled On the Origins of Totalitarianism. Now, standing on the fiery dawn of a new age of victimhood, with collectivist ideology once again on the ascendancy and the haunting specter of identity politics looming large across the West, Arendt's key insights are simultaneously as poignant and, one fears, prescient as ever. Though actually recalled by precious few among the living today, most of us comprehend the economic and cultural malaise of 1920s and 1930s Europe as a kind of top-down dictatorial circus in which charismatic tyrants lectured their legions from balconies and military strongmen choreographed goose-stepping foot soldiers across vast arenas for all the world to witness. Arendt, however, much as she was privy to such conspicuous machinations of the militarized state, sensed something else at work, something far more insidious, more viral, and against which it would prove near impossible to inoculate. It is chilling to consider that, as with so many who made by the fingernail escapes from the iron clenches of totalitarianism, the experiences that helped inform this key insight very nearly cost Arendt her life. The young student was not yet 30 years of age when she began using her student access to the Prussia State Library to investigate the extent of anti-Semitism in her native Germany. The year was 1933, and Adolf Hitler had just acceded to power as Chancellor. Shortly thereafter, Arendt was denounced to the Gestapo by a librarian, just doing his job, no doubt, for engaging in anti-state propaganda. She was duly arrested, along with her mother. After eight days in prison, the pair was released and a court date set. Their stint inside being apparently sufficient for the women to realise that the situation in Germany was untenable, they immediately fled the country, heading first to Czechoslovakia and Switzerland, and eventually on to Paris. There they would remain until 1940, when the younger Arendt was interned by the military governor of Paris as an alien enemy between the ages of 17 and 55. Her mother, then 55, was permitted to remain in the city. It was only during the chaos and confusion of France's haphazard piecemeal capitulation later that same year that Arendt was able to secure her liberation papers and, along with her mother, embark on an 11th hour passage to New York City and to the New World. So it was that a decade later, with the smouldering embers of the European continent over her shoulder, Arendt sought first to ask, and then to answer, the question plaguing every thinking individual's deepest conscience, then and since. If such unspeakable evil could flourish in Germany, the very acme of civilized society, what was to stop such a gruesome event from coming to pass anywhere else, 
including right here, in our own lands, during our own time, and maybe under our very own two feet. After all, Germany was not some barbarian backwater of a bygone era, where one might reasonably expect to discover heartbreaking acts of wanton savagery and blind ubiquitous violence, to encounter the life of man as, to borrow Hobbes's famous phrase, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. This was post-enlightenment, uber-industrialized Germany, birthplace of Bach and Beethoven and Brahms, the nation that had gifted the world Goethe and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, Kepler, Heisenberg and Einstein. If cultural accomplishments, scientific achievement and aesthetic apices were to serve as bulwarks against bare-knuckled, pre-civilized Hobbesian dystopias, what nation on earth was better equipped to stand sentry than Germany? Of course, along with the aforementioned minds, Germany also bestowed upon the world Messrs. Marx and Engels, whose historical materialism posited, in place of individuals and their nettlesome liberal rights and ideals, rather modes of production, they being the productive forces and the societal power hierarchies governing them as prime drivers of this thing we call the human project. It was this bastardization of Hegel's dialectic that would come to embody one of the malformed political twins that matured into the ugly, grotesque 20th century totalitarianism later visited upon the world under the banner of communism. Many were those who saw this leftist extreme as the antidote to so-called right-wing fascism. And yet, as Arendt well understood, communism and Nazism were in fact fraternal in nature, nourished in the same ideological womb. While her contemporary thinkers allowed themselves to be distracted by divide-and-conquer politics, Arendt remained exquisitely sensitive to the fact that, while contemporary thinkers allowed themselves to be distracted by partisan, divide-and-conquer politics, Arendt remained exquisitely sensitive to the fact that totalitarianism itself swore no allegiance to such provincial, commonly held notions of right or left, that it was rather a self-serving entity, an organism unto itself, a parasitoid infecting unthinking hosts at both extremes of the socio-political spectrum. The relevant common genetic trait, or predisposition we might say, was the tendency to elevate the collective above the individual, whether that concept be nationalist in nature, as was the case for the Nazis, or internationalist, as for the communists. Indeed, Hitler himself stated that Nazism favoured neither the right nor the left, as mistakenly depicted oppositions, but drew instead from the pure elements from both quarters. Quote, From the camp of bourgeois tradition, Nazism takes national resolve, and from the materialism of Marxist dogma, living creative socialism. End quote. He distrusted capitalism as being susceptible to rank egotism, preferring instead socialist-style state-directed economy that could subordinate any individualistic impulses to the collective will of the Volk. Thus, the Nazis maintained extensive socialist programs across the German Reich, including food programs for the poor and shelter for the homeless, many of whom were later recruited into the brown shirts. And yet, as far as this line of inquiry had taken her, Arendt realized that collectivist dogma alone could not be to blame for the mass atrocities of the 20th century, any more than an inanimate object could be blamed for committing a single murder. Ideology had to be utilized, mobilized, actualized by living, breathing humans. Instructions had to be carried out by desk killers like the infamous Adolf Eichmann, 
overseen by desensitized henchmen and apathetic bureaucrats, people who could claim to be just doing their job. The source, Arendt argued, the potential for such evil must therefore reside somewhere within man himself, or at least in the way in which he chose to organize himself within a given political context. In addition to examining how evil operated at the individual level, therefore, Arendt sought to understand evil in what might be called the macro sense, how it rose to the societal level. She sought to apprehend the normalization, the conventionalization, and the bureaucratization of our very basest impulses. She was interested in the manner in which it spread like a fungus, as she put it, rapidly fecund, but without need for deep roots. Malignant, in other words, infecting the population cubicle by cubicle, office by office, department by department, in much the same way as a cancer works its way through the body, one cell, one organ at a time. Sifting through the ideological rubble of the devastated continent she had left behind, and drawing on her keen historical knowledge as a student of the Greco-Roman classics, Arendt soon began to piece together a theory for how such a wide-scale atrocity could come to pass. For totalitarianism to flourish, she posited, two requisite ingredients must coalesce, forming a kind of unholy alliance. They were terror and ideology. In order to effectively terrorize a population, Arendt contended, man must first be separated both from his fellow man and from his own inner self. He must be isolated, cut off from his support networks, both external and internal, outflanked societally and infiltrated mentally. This was to reduce human beings to apolitical animals, to alienate them from one another, to number them, to tag them, and to dehumanize them. It is what Stalin meant when he said, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic. Once man was rent from his community, a clod washed away by the sea, to Marshall Dunn's famous words, he was left prone, exposed to still a more profound, insidious disjunction. The estrangement even from the self as an independent agent for reason. For Arendt, it was this interior citadel of the mind that represented the individual's last stand against totalitarian ideological infiltration. The ability to hold an inner dialogue with one's own conscience, to weigh countervailing impulses, to observe the same position from different angles, to entertain discordant ideas without necessarily subscribing to one or either of them. In short, to think for oneself. Socrates referred to his daimon or daimonian, literally divine something, as a kind of inner conscience with which he consulted and which kept him from erring, from commission of evil and susceptibility to it. We might think of this as the proverbial voice in our heads, urging us to return the wallet we found in the back of the taxicab. The effect of this dual severing, the simultaneous external from society and internal from the mind dissociation, was to leave the individual utterly, helplessly stranded and longing desperately for a saviour. By way of analogy, we might consider how an abusive spouse employs intimidation and invigilation to monitor and then suppress his victim's contact with the outside world gradually cutting them off from their critical support network of family, friends, and colleagues. Once his victim is isolated, the predator can then begin a far more intricate undertaking of incessant psychological attack, distorting his victim's perception of reality, gaslighting them into accepting 
even appreciating their new normal, a condition sometimes referred to as Stockholm Syndrome. Having dashed the outside supply lines and emptied his victim of all self-confidence, the abuser is now in a position of absolute power, able to dictate and translate reality, to fill his prey with whatever narrative, whatever ideology best serves his own interests. To dominate them, in other words, totally. Consider the plight of the Russian clerk in the 1920s, who runs afoul of some arbitrary party policy during the course of his quotidian duties, and is thus accused of being a saboteur. He is brought to trial on trumped-up charges and invited to defend himself. His interrogation goes something like the following. Have you engaged in acts of sabotage against the party? No. But you are a member of the party? Yes. And you agree that whatever the party holds to be true is, in fact, true? Yes. And does the party contend that you are a saboteur? Yes. Then you will please answer the question again. Have you engaged in acts of sabotage against the party? Yes. During Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem, which Arendt famously covered for the New Yorker magazine, she was astounded to discover that a man so pivotal, so vital to implementing Hitler's final solution, the man who organized and oversaw the deportation of millions of Jews to concentration and extermination camps, could be utterly incapable of even a single act of independent thought. He was, Arendt observed, thoughtless, in the very literal sense of the word. Quote, The only specific characteristic one could detect in his past, as well as in his behavior during the trial and the preceding police examination, was something entirely negative. It was not stupidity, but a curious, quite authentic inability to think. As a keen linguist herself, Arendt recognized how Eichmann's poverty of mind manifested itself in entirely unoriginal speech patterns. Immune to the reality of the objective world and consumed by its propaganda simulacrum, Eichmann had become the perfect totalitarian tool. Clichés, stock phrases, adherence to conventional, standardized codes of expression and conduct have socially recognized functions of protecting us against reality, wrote Arendt. That is, against the claim on our thinking attention that all events and facts make by virtue of their existence, end quote. Whether right or left, fascist or communist, Arendt understood that totalitarianism of all stripes found fertile matter in terrorized individuals, riven from their fellow man and inner self, and thus primed for mass indoctrination and ideological brainwashing. Which brings us to today. In at least three ways are we being separated, cleaved, atomized from our fellow man and ourselves, rent from our most inner conscience, and, once emptied, filled with an ideology rife with, and defined by, intolerance and unyielding in its totality. First, we live in an age of unprecedented media ubiquity, mass media we call it, in which artificial intelligence, in the form of unimaginably advanced computer algorithms, deliver us bespoke realities, tailor-made to appeal to our own individual preferences and increasingly pronounced biases. Moreover, these 7.6 billion universes of one, in which we are each actively directed from one page impression to the next along our own unique, discrete journey, are built as much to engage and enrage us more than inform us, and it shows. 
one need only spend five minutes on Twitter for incontrovertible proof of man's descent from once common decency. In the digital realm, reality itself has become a kind of choose-your-own-adventure experience, where one can discover facts to support practically any worldview imaginable, and plenty which might seem utterly unimaginable too. The result of this vast informational fragmentation is that even two people living in the same house, with a lifetime of shared human experience, may come to harbour diametrically oppositional interpretations of exactly the same non-witnessed event, depending on the media sources slash filters through which each person passively receives it. This is something akin to a phenomenon mathematicians call parallax, whereby the position or direction of an object appears to change when viewed from different positions. Multiply this moment-to-moment separation by every single event consumed, and you have a world of individuals moving further and further away from each other at increasing speed, like matter exploding outwardly from the Big Bang toward the distant corners of the universe. Thus, society is fragmented, its component parts scattered. Barely three decades into this grand informational experiment, we have only recently begun to assess its deleterious effects on our collective consciousness. Preliminary attempts to measure the impact of ceaseless social media bombardment, particularly its effects on the malleable teen mind, have yielded horrifying results, to put it mildly. Trends in suicide, addiction, depression, self-harm, and psychological aberrations of myriad descriptions are off the charts having all hockey-sticked since the advent of the internet, and, especially, social media. And yet, the centrifugal expansion accelerates. Emerging around the same time as the internet, and developing roughly in parallel with it, a curious doctrine of division began taking hold in the already self-serving, inward-looking academies of the West, namely, critical race theory. One might say this is where, precisely as Arendt observed, terror meets ideology. As she had written in Origins, quote, Before mass leaders seize power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by its extreme contempt for facts as such. For in their opinion, facts depend entirely on the power of man who can fabricate it. End quote. Though an inquiry into the origins of critical race theory go beyond the limited scope of this essay, a few remarks will suffice to contextualize its inclusion here. Tracing its roots back through post-structuralism to Marxist historical materialism, critical race theory defines itself as anti-liberal and is predicated on the idea that white supremacy is rife, systemic, and forms an integral part of oppressive power structures that must be dismantled immediately and by force if necessary. Adherents contend that Enlightenment values such as rationality, legal equality, what the Greeks called isonomia, constitutional neutrality, and individual rights are impediments to their desired equality of outcome, sometimes called equity. Characterized in part by its rejection of, quote, evidence-based knowledge, which it views as part of an oppressive legacy of Western patriarchy, critical race theory appeals instead to storytelling, tradition, and even superstition to undergird its wild claims and political action, oftentimes violent, to achieve its horrific ends. A pure contempt for facts, to borrow Arendt's words, coupled with an absolute hunger for power. 
what could go wrong? The grand irony of the so-called critical theorists is that there is nothing particularly critical about their theorizing at all. At best, theirs is a pseudo-intellectualism, gussied up as rigorous academic inquiry. At worst, it is a divisive and hateful dogma, in which human beings are rent and siloed according to an arbitrary set of immutable characteristics, race, sex, etc., then intersectionalized into the vast victim matrix, which must, its evangelists myopically contend, characterize all aspects of human experience. Moreover, the critical race theory crowd traffics shamelessly in what psychologists call projection, accusing anyone who doesn't conform to their appalling doctrine of exactly that which best defines their very own movement, bigotry in its most primitive, unalloyed, and irreducible form. For proponents of this most intolerant of creeds, there is only one line, the party line. Recall our unknowing, unthinking saboteur. Anyone deviating from the accepted, nay, mandated orthodoxy is cancelled, deplatformed, silenced, doxxed, or worse. In this way do the high priests of the allegedly woke crowd put the total back in totalitarianism. By acting as the self-appointed panjandrums of all that is true and sublime in the universe, the grand poobahs of taste, ethics, morality, and virtue. Not content with obliterating the here and now, they attempt a staggering act of hubris in demanding the cancellation of history, too, as if they themselves were cast into the world as fully formed, autochthonous beings, owing nothing to the mighty, elevated shoulders on which they so blithely luxuriate in their own special kind of ignorance, wholly unaware that they are not, as they so assume, taken to flight on wings fashioned of their own omniscient genius. When next you hear an apologist for the critical race theory movement, recall for a moment our unthinking desk killer, Adolf Eichmann. Recall the little man's conspicuous inability to think for himself, and how his speech was thus confined to cliché, stock phrases, and adherence to conventional, standardized codes. Think about this human-cum-automaton when you hear about some celebrity cancelled, who is doing the work or being an ally, when you are reminded of someone's privilege or unconscious bias or some act of cultural appropriation, when you are called upon to validate someone's lived experience or personal truth or lectured about alternative ways of knowing, so too for the entire unending lexicon of prescribed newspeak, including microaggression, safe space, triggered, epistemic oppression, white fragility, and all the rest. Such stock phrases and cliches form the backbone for a decidedly uncritical, narrow, and idiomatic expression of the new, downloadable ideology known as woke. No thinking required. Guaranteed. Critical race theory training is now common, and in many cases mandatory and taxpayer-funded, across academies, institutions, corporations, and for both federal agencies and federal contractors throughout the United States. The unholy alliance between today's terrorized, atomized minds and the latest iteration of arguably mankind's deadliest, most divisive ideologies was daunting enough. Even before 2020, the seething flames of discontent burned white hot. Then came a pandemic. Plenty has been written and will be written regarding the biological, political, and economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, but none of those are directly germane to today's discussion. 
We are interested here in what did not happen in 2020. As a result either of the virus itself, the national and international governmental response to it, or some combination of the both. At a minimum, we notice that people did not come together, as usual, to celebrate birthdays and weddings, to mourn at funerals, and to cheer at stadiums, theatres and music halls. They did not travel, did not visit family, did not embrace one another over Christmas, Passover, Ramadan, Diwali, Festivus, what have you. They did not, in any normal sense of the term, come together at all. Not without some fear and trepidation, real or imagined, in their hearts. They did not attend the Olympics, did not go on vacation, did not congregate around the water cooler, gossip over happy hour martinis, or strike up random conversations with strangers at the next table in a noisy neighborhood bistro, not in the way they ordinarily do. Whatever your political affiliation or spiritual persuasion, your team colors or country of origin, whether you say your prayers in Hindi or Urdu, English or Yiddish, or not at all, you likely spent more time apart last year than together. Our most common overriding experience, something we all endured together in one way or another, was something entirely uncommon, our untogetherness. It is difficult to imagine how such an unprecedented global upheaval will impact our already fragile social fabric. So many of the usual circuit breakers have been bypassed. The regular checks and balances that we take for granted have been suspended, perhaps indefinitely. The immediate price one pays for making an outrageous comment at a party, for example. The pushback one receives after floating an unsubstantiated theory over dinner. The friend who keeps us in line, checks our irrational impulses, steers us away from conspiracies, balances our neuroses, who brings out our best and inspires us to do better for ourselves and for those around us, our group, our network, our mates, at what cost did we forgo that community experience? We know how to measure the biological toll of the COVID-19 virus. We are reminded every moment of every day, with a never-ending scroll of case numbers and fatalities, we are constantly updated as to news of dreaded variants and the hopeful progress of vaccine rollouts notified of second, third, and fourth waves crashing upon shores around the world. As to the cost of the state-led, systematic breakdown of society, our inability to freely associate, to stand guard, shoulder to physical shoulder, against the insidious creep of terrorizing ideology, what this isolation portends for the days and years ahead, that remains to be seen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.